All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, happy Palm Sunday. Uh, it's so good to be uh, with you. Uh, I, I was up in NorCal last week guest speaking, and I, I sorely missed um, our community here at Citizens. Well, it's good to be uh, here with you all, um, especially if you're new, really want to welcome you. My name is Jason. I have the privilege of serving uh, as the pastor here at the church. Um, you know, really thankful for Dennis and Trin. Again, want to really encourage you, um, you know, I, especially like in this season with Easter, there's so much happening in the church, but I think one of the best ways we can be reminded of why the church exists and why we do what we do um, is to kind of look outwards. And there are just so many needs in our community and so many ways that we can be a neighbor um, in the city of LA. So really encourage you uh, to sign up for that field trip uh, coming up on April 23rd. Uh, with that, I want to get into the word today. Uh, if you know, a few weeks ago, if you've been with us, we started a new sermon series in the book of Ruth. Uh, this short but super impactful story in the Old Testament that shows us a picture of a God who works in the most unexpected ways through the most unexpected people to bring about his will in the world and in our lives. And and before we start, I kind of want you to take a moment and think about something in your life for which you are deeply grateful. Uh, maybe it's uh, the roof over your head. Uh, maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's an opportunity. Uh, maybe it's the people you get to do life with. Maybe it's an experience you had this week. Uh, whatever it may be, I want you to think about that. And I want you to think about all the different things that needed to happen, all the different pieces that had to come together in the most perfect way in order for you to have this thing for which you are so grateful. You know, we didn't just wake up one morning and have the job that we have, right? There were so many things that had to transpire. There were different people who had to come into our lives. There, were, uh, maybe, maybe, there was maybe a situation or a circumstance that forced you to move to a new city, and then one conversation that made you decide you wanted to go back to school, and then when you were in class, you had a classmate or a professor tell you that they believed in you and that they saw something in you, uh, and that they knew a friend who worked at a company um, and then referred you to a job, and somehow today you're there. Right? There were all these things, but I think oftentimes we forget that all of these things happen. Now, you can think that um, these things are just luck or by accident, or you can believe that it was the hand of God orchestrating every detail of your life, both good and bad, to mold and shape you into the person he wants you to become. And that's kind of a theme that we're going to see in the book of Ruth, especially here in Ruth chapter 2, where you basically have a series of the most insane coincidences that could happen uh, that make you kind of shake your head and say, that just can't be an accident. Like, you can't even make this stuff up, right? And what's really interesting as we're going to read Ruth 2 today is that even though God never says a word in, in Ruth 2, he never directly acts, all the characters in the story still attribute everything that happens, all these coincidences that happen to the hand of God, working behind the scenes in and through every detail of their lives. Okay, so just to recap real quick, uh, in Ruth 1, we're introduced to two of the three main characters in the story, right? Both of whom have hit rock bottom. You have Naomi, who is an Israelite woman who once had everything a person could want, status, protection, security, uh, a husband and two sons, which in a patriarchal society was like hitting the jackpot, right? 
But then tragedy strikes one thing after the other, right? First, there's a famine in the land, which forces her family to have to migrate to a region that's hostile to Israelites, the region of Moab. And then shortly after they get there, her husband Elimelech dies, which leaves Naomi alone with her two sons. She marries her two sons off to two Moabite women, which in and of itself would have been looked down upon. Uh, but to make matters worse, uh, both her sons die without having any children. Okay, and so by the time the famine ends and Naomi returns to her hometown, Bethlehem, everything's changed. All the men in her life have died, and the only person who's come back with her is her Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth, who's also a widow, also with no status, no protection, no security. And not only that, she's a Moabite living in enemy territory. Okay, she's a Moabite living in Bethlehem. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, um, if you want to turn with me to Ruth chapter 2, we're going to read the whole, whole section. And especially, with, with, these are long kind of passages in Scripture, really want to encourage you to really kind of dive into the story. You know, to really place yourself in the story, to understand what's going on, to place yourself uh, in the perspective of the characters that you see here. Okay, Ruth chapter 2, and I'm going to be reading from the New International Version, the NIV and you'll see it on the screen behind me. This is the reading of God's word. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. Real quick. Um, What's really interesting is all throughout chapter 1, Ruth is referred to as just Ruth, right? But at the end of chapter 1, when she arrives in Bethlehem with Naomi, the author identifies her as Ruth the Moabite. And right, right there, the first time we hear Ruth's name in chapter 2, she's also referred to as Ruth the Moabite, right? It's as if the author is intentionally highlighting the fact that Ruth is not from here. She's an outsider, She's different. She doesn't belong as a part of this community, right? You know, as a, a Korean-American, I grew up in Cerritos, okay? My high school was like 50% um, Asian, right? 50, maybe 50% Korean, right? So I thought Koreans were the majority in this country, right? And, you know, first day of school, you go get your, um, you go get your schedules, and there was a line for, like, last names A through E, and then F through K-A, and then it was like Kim, right? And it was like amazing because you were like, oh, there are so many Kims um, at this school. Well, my wife grew up in the suburbs of Philly where she was probably like one of three Asians in her elementary school, right? And so for, for my wife, she was always Carol the Asian, right? Like that was her identifier because she stuck out. And it does something to your psyche when you're constantly referred to by the thing that makes you an outsider, by the thing that makes you feel like you don't quite belong. And so what the author of Ruth, I feel like, wants to commun communicate to us right away in chapter 2 is that what Ruth has willingly committed herself to by tethering herself to Naomi and following her back to Bethlehem is a lifetime of being identified as an outsider. Ruth the Moabite. Okay? Back to the, back to the word. Okay, verse 3. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. 
Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it mounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Amen. So this is where we are at chapter 2. Okay, you have two widows uh, attempting to start a life together alone in a world where widows are the most vulnerable people in society. Right? And at the beginning of the chapter, we're immediately introduced to the third character in this story, Boaz. And the first thing we read is that he's a man of standing. Okay, the Hebrew word there is the word ha'il, uh, which denotes a man of stature, wealth, valor, high economic standing in the community. And we read that this man just happens to be from the clan of Elimelech. Okay, which is significant because it means that of all the fields Ruth could have entered, of all the fields she could have ended up in, she happened to end up in the one field where owned by the man who was their family's guardian redeemer. Okay, in, in the translations, I know some of the community groups read this week, you read kinsman redeemer, right? And um, we're going to get to that a little bit more in later chapters, but essentially um, a kinsman redeemer, guardian redeemer could do with a dying family what like a government could do for a dying bank, 
right? There was a part of the law that said if you were, that a member of the clan could help out another member of the clan who had fallen on hard times. And the primary way people did this was by marrying a widow. Okay, so if you imagine like we're watching a movie, this is that moment in the movie when we, the audience, get in on a secret that even the characters in the movie have no idea about. Okay, so we know right at the very beginning of this chapter that Boaz happens to be from the clan of Elimelech. Um, this is huge. Okay, so if you were a, an early Jewish uh, hearer of this story, uh, this would have been where the drama begins to unfold. Okay, so you have this Moabite immigrant widow Ruth in the field of this extremely well-respected, wealthy Israelite landowner Boaz. And needless to say, there is nothing that Ruth and Boaz have in common. Okay, there is absolutely uh, nothing that they share in common. Race, status, culture, privilege, background. They are as different as two people could possibly be. Okay? And the only thing they share in common is their faith. Um, and we know this because Ruth is a new believer, because we know that she has committed to, uh, to following Naomi's God. And we know that Boaz is also a believer because in verse 4, the way he greets his servants is like this. He says, the Lord be with you, to which the workers respond, the Lord bless you. And it's a subtle but really important detail here because it not only shows us that Boaz is someone who honors the Lord in his work, but it also shows us that his workers actually respect him. Okay, so Boaz has like a really healthy staff culture okay, on this field. Okay, really good boss. Right? They say, the Lord be with you. Right? And, and this is important because it shows us that Boaz is not just a Sunday Christian. He's not just someone who says he believes in God, but he's, some, he's a man who organizes his entire life, his workplace around his relationship to Yahweh. Okay? And in the end, uh, both Ruth and Boaz are going to show us what a faith lived out in everyday life looks like. We're going to see it in Ruth, and we're going to see it in Boaz. And in the end, both of these characters are going to be huge signposts that point us to the heart of Jesus. And I want you to think about the implications of that. This idea that a poor immigrant widow who has absolutely no social capital and a wealthy Israelite landowner who has all the social capital in the world can both show us glimpses of the heart of Jesus. And what this means is that whether you are the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, or you are a college student, or you are a stay-at-home parent, you have the same capacity to embody the love of Jesus in a way that only you can, right? And so we're gonna look at each of those characters. We'll start with Ruth. Contrary to popular belief, uh, Ruth is not this weak, helpless girl who needs to be rescued. Okay, Ruth is a boss, all right? Like, uh, at the end of Ruth chapter 2, I mean, she carries back an ephah of barley. Uh, that would have been about 30 to 50 pounds of barley on her back in the hot sun, okay? My son, Jack, weighs about 45 pounds. I cannot walk, like, 10 yards um, with him on my back, okay? So Ruth is strong, all right? She, she's a boss, and, and, you know, like, uh, I've been watching this show right now, Pachinko. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you should absolutely watch it. You should definitely read the book as well. But it's basically a book that chronicles the life of a Korean immigrant family over four generations and talks about how, uh, talks about the Japanese colonization and how it affected Korea and how it affected this particular family. But every time I watch the show and I see the protagonist, Hanja, I, I think about Ruth. 
And um, you know, Sanja is this girl who lost her dad at a young age, tuberculosis. Uh, and then when she's 17, she gets pregnant out of wedlock. And, and there's this pivotal scene when Sanja is sitting with a pastor who basically finds out she's pregnant, uh, this pastor who understands the, the social implication, what the social implications are going to be for her and her family once the village finds out that she's gotten pregnant out of wedlock. And he wants to help her, right? So he's like, hey, I, I know what's going on. I know your situation. I have an idea. You know, like there are all these uh, families who, who, who want, who would love to have a baby. So after you have this child, we can just um, offer this family up. Uh, for adoption, offer this family, uh, offer this baby up uh, to any of these families. And, you know, so there's this moment when Sanja looks straight at this pastor and she's like confused and she's like, I'm not giving up the baby. And she's like, I know what my life is going to be like. I know how people are going to view me. I've counted the costs and I'm ready. Like, I'm here for it. And this is Ruth. You know, in, in Ruth chapter 1, when she says to Naomi, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there, I will be buried. She's saying, I know what going with you is going to mean for the rest of my life. I know that everyone's going to treat me like an outsider. I know the shame that's going to come with being a young Moabite woman in a foreign country. I know it. I know I'm going to be poor, and I know I'm going to have to glean for a living, and I'm here for it. I'm ready. Now, to give you some context, gleaning, which Ruth is doing uh, or requesting to do here in Ruth chapter 2, was basically Israel's welfare system. Okay? It, was the, it was a way for the poor to make a living. And if you read Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24, you'll see specific gleaning laws that required farmers to leave, leave the edges of their field unharvested so that those who were economically vulnerable, those who were the fatherless, the widows, the foreigners, could basically glean and make a living, right? And I want to pause and I want to say this, and I'm really glad that Dennis mentioned this when he was up here. I think when we read the Old Testament, we often think about God's law as this list of oppressive rules and restrictions, right? That's, that's normally how we think about the Mosaic law. But when you actually read through the law, you come to realize that the law is, is not really a list of, of, of restrictions and rules. They're actually a window into God's heart for the, for the poor. They're actually a window into, a, uh, into God's heart for justice, and a window into God's love and compassion the law was God's way of showing his people the things that were close to his heart. And in this sense, what God was trying to communicate to his people through these gleaning laws was that nothing they had was theirs. They didn't earn anything. Their land, their money, their harvest, everything was a gift of grace and meant to be shared with those less fortunate. Now, this doesn't mean that being a gleaner was easy. Right? Gleaning was rough. It was hard work in the hot sun. I mean, especially if you were young, female, foreign, and most likely wearing garments uh, that was a dead giveaway that you were a widow. It was dangerous. Right? Not only were there hungry gleaners, mostly men, uh, who would steal your keep for the day, uh, but if they knew you were a widow, you were a prime target for sexual assault. 
right? Because they would know that you don't have a clan, you don't belong to a clan, or you don't, quote, belong to males who can protect you. And so you were a prime target for sexual assault and abuse. And that's just the physical risk that came with gleaning. That's probably not even the worst part of it. The worst part of being a gleaner was the shame that was associated with it. Gleaning was a public display of your poverty, right? You were basically showing the world that you were, you were a part of a certain class of people. And in that honor-shame culture, you have to understand that that was worse than the poverty itself, okay? To be a gleaner was a public display of your poverty. And so we, we can't just skim over the boldness of what Ruth is preparing to do. She knows everything that can happen to her. She knows the physical risk. She knows the shame and the humiliation that could befall her. And yet she says, I'm here for it. She chooses to do it willingly. You know, um, when I lived in Philadelphia, um, I opened a business. It was an SAT academy slash college consulting business. And um, one of my favorite things to do was help to help students with their personal statements, right? Because it was an opportunity for me to get to know students on a, on a deeper level, to get to know their stories. And I, uh, and I always remember um, one specific personal statement of one of my students um, and the, the, uh, he entitled the statement, Hot Cross Buns, okay? And um, uh, the, the prompt was to describe a memorable moment in your life and, and explain why it was significant to you. And he, he called his essay Hot Cross Buns, and he, he went on to talk about how the most memorable moment in his life happened when he was in the first grade, and it was his first school recital. And they were playing the children's song, Hot Cross Buns, okay? And he was the trombone player, okay, in the first grade. And... Um, he recalls, um, you know, he's super nervous and, and all the parents are in the theater and he's, he's squinting out into the audience and he's, he's looking for his parents and he catches his mom sitting there with an empty seat next to her. And, um, and this student is like, oh, I wonder, in his mind, he's like, I wonder if my dad's going to show up. And, you know, it, this show's about to start, you know, five minutes, three minutes, one minute warning, still no sign of his dad. And... The show starts, and, and all he sees is his mom holding the video camera, and the mom is just taping the entire performance, and um, he talks about how embarrassed he was in that moment, right, and how, you know, how, how heartbroken he was that his dad couldn't watch um, his first recital. And um, he goes home that day, he's upset, he's frustrated, um, and... He, he gets woken up in the middle of the night because he hears a sound uh, from downstairs. And he walks downstairs, and he sees his dad sitting in the living room watching the video of him, and he's just sobbing. And, and basically, he tells the story of his dad. His dad used to be a well-known professor in Korea. Um, but because, uh, you know, he wanted to provide a better life for his kids... Um, he basically immigrated um, to the States where, because of the language barrier, the cultural barrier, he couldn't find a job. And so he ended up taking a job as a janitor working the night shift, ironically, at a university. And he talks about the irony of that, right? Seeing his dad kind of on both sides of higher education, essentially. And, and in that moment, as he's watching his dad sitting there, like, taking in the video, he realizes what his dad has sacrificed to be there. You know, he sacrificed a well-paying job. 
He sacrificed um, his own dreams. And he's basically taken on this job that is so hard where every day he goes, he doesn't understand what people are saying. Uh, his dad comes from an honor-shame culture as well, and so there's a shame associated with it. He feels humiliated. And, what, and, and, and the way that this kind of manifested in my student's life was that he said, you know, to be honest, that was the first of many performances where there was an empty seat in the audience. But every time he saw that empty seat, now he wasn't upset. He was proud. He was so grateful for the sacrifice his dad made. And what, what my students' dad and what Ruth have in common is that their sacrifice, my students' dad to, to immigrate to the States, Ruth's uh, decision to follow Naomi, these decisions offered real, no real benefit to them. Right? If you think about it, Ruth doesn't really get anything out of following Naomi. Probably makes her life harder. Right? Maybe companionship, but I mean, it's her mother-in-law, right? I mean, like, there's a reason they call it mother-in-law, right? I mean, there, Naomi has no power. Naomi has no privilege, no status, no connections she can tap into. Some might say Naomi is dead weight for Ruth. And you would think as you read Ruth chapter 2 and you, once Boaz starts flirting with Ruth, you know, like once he's like, you can dip your bread in my wine vinegar, right? You would think Ruth would be like, this is it. You know, this is my ticket, right? I don't need Naomi anymore, right? Like, I, you know, you would think like once Ruth knows she has this relationship on lock, I mean, she would just let go of Naomi. And yet Ruth doesn't break her promise. There's never a point in this story when Ruth says, you know what, I earned this this is mine. You know, we live in Los Angeles where you get a lot of people who are nice to you until they're not nice to you anymore. A lot of people who are nice to you until they move up the social ladder and they don't quite need you anymore. Like, we're used to this. Well, when you look at this story, Ruth withholds nothing from Naomi. There's never a point, even when Ruth's fortunes seem to be turning for the better, there's never a point when she lets go of Naomi, lets go of her commitment to follow Naomi wherever she goes. And my favorite part of the whole chapter is the last line. And she lived with her mother-in-law. It's so anticlimactic if you're reading this story because it's like things are happening, right? Ruth has found her ticket out of poverty, She's met the man of her dreams. She's found a community of women to walk alongside her. She doesn't need Naomi anymore, and yet the last line says, and she lived with her mother-in-law. She stays even when she doesn't need to stay. You know, sometimes there is nothing more powerful and reflective of the love of Jesus than people who choose to stay when they don't need to when people who are willing to sacrifice their own comfort, their own needs, their own preferences, their own dreams and aspirations for the sake of others at great cost to themselves. I mean, this is who Jesus is. Jesus willingly endures the humiliation and shame of a cross for people who offer no benefit to him whatsoever. In the book of Romans, we read that while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. Hebrews 12 talks about how Jesus, for the joy, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. The cross, just like gleaning, was a public display of embarrassment and dishonor that was reserved for only the worst of the worst. And yet Jesus chose to endure it willingly in order to set us free from the slavery of sin and death. And Jesus is God, right? So at any moment in the story, Jesus could have walked away while he was being stripped, while he was being beaten, while he was being mocked. It was all in Jesus' prerogative to walk away. You would think he would have walked away, he would have come down from the cross, especially when he heard people walk by and say, he saved others, but he can't save himself. And yet Jesus doesn't come down. Jesus stays. And he stays true to his promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. This is the kind of commitment Ruth embodies for Naomi. Okay? Well, let's move on to Boaz. I mentioned this before, but Boaz has all the power and privilege in this story. Right? He has no obligation, no reason to go out of his way for Ruth. And yet we read that not only does Boaz let Ruth glean from any part of his land, right, which was already going above and beyond, he then instructs his male workers to not lay a hand on Ruth. He invites Ruth into his home for a meal, and then he provides Ruth with a community of women to walk alongside her. Men don't even treat women like this in 2022, okay, let alone in the patriarchal world of the Bible. The social and cultural norms a wealthy Israelite landowner in that time would have had to violate to invite a Moabite woman to eat with him at his table, they're unthinkable. Right? We're not talking about giving someone a few dollars on the street. We're talking about going to Skid Row, inviting a stranger into your home, and sharing a meal with him or her. This is what's happening here. If you were an original Jewish hearer of this story, your jaw would have been on the floor. This is not supposed to happen. This isn't even in the law. But you see, for people who truly walk with God, the law isn't restriction, it's permission. It doesn't tell you what you can't do. It tells you what you get to do. There's a difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. You see, religious, a religious person is obsessed with upholding the letter of the law. A religious person looks at the Mosaic law and, about gleaning and asks, hmm, I wonder if this corner of the field is big enough to fulfill what the law requires of me. A religious person asks, um, you know, I wonder how far I can go before something is considered sin. A religious person asks, do I have to tithe? And if I tithe, is it gross or is it net? Right? A religious person is concerned about what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. That is not what a relationship with God looks like. If you're a husband and your wife says, can we make a rule in our house that we go on a date night once a month, please, if you're a husband, do not ask, hey, like yesterday when we watched Netflix together, does that count as a date? Okay, you missed the point. Okay, you missed the point. What your wife is asking for is your presence and your attention. There's a difference between the spirit of the letter of the law 
and the spirit of the law, and one telltale sign that a person has moved from religiosity to an actual relationship with God is that they care more about the spirit of the law than they do about the letter of the law. The question is no longer, what do I have to do, but rather, what do I get to do? The letter of the law says, let the poor glean. The spirit of the law says, feed them. Let the poor glean, but the spirit of the law says, feed them. Boaz isn't thinking, what more am I required to do for Ruth? No, he's thinking, how do I use all of the resources at my disposal, my power, my privilege, and my status to provide and care for this woman whom God loves so deeply? You see, what you and I often expect those with power and privilege to do is to abuse their power and privilege to exploit people and take advantage of people. And yet Boaz doesn't do that because Boaz follows a God who doesn't do that, a God who, though he was rich, became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. In Philippians 2, we read that Jesus, who was in very nature God, did not count his equality with God something to be grasped, something to be exploited, something to be used to his advantage, but rather made himself nothing and took on the form of a servant. And when Jesus came to this earth, he didn't concern himself with the letter of the law because he was too busy fulfilling the spirit of the law. Everywhere Jesus went, he was crossing social, cultural lines, interacting with people he wasn't supposed to be interacting with, inviting sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors to eat with him at the table, touching lepers who were deemed unclean by society, healing on the Sabbath. The letter of the law said, don't let them in. The spirit of the law said, love them. And that's what he did. And you know, in the grand scheme of things, what Boaz does isn't this like one groundbreaking moment. It's just a series of really small, simple acts of obedience, acts of faithfulness. To let a foreigner eat at his table, to tell his workers not to harass a woman, to give Ruth access to the quality grains, all small choices which end up creating a culture of love, care, and compassion. And when you think about it, Boaz's field is like a mini church. Right? I was thinking about that a lot reading this. Right? It's what the church should be. A city on a hill, a community that stands out, a group of people who choose to live life differently. I actually wanted to title this sermon, A City on a Field. Okay, but Sill and DC were like, that's cheesy. Don't do that. So, but I said it, okay? A city on a field. But this is what the church is. We think the church is this event that we do on Sunday mornings. This is not what the church is. The church is not a place you go. This is the people that we are. The church is a group of people embodying the love of Jesus in the places they live, work, and play. Think about what Boaz's simple actions model for his workers, his male workers who may one day also find themselves in positions of power and authority. This is discipleship. He's discipling them. On other fields, women are mistreated, not on this field. On other fields, there is a clear social hierarchy where certain people can do certain things, not on this field. On other fields, leaders are harsh to their workers, not on this field. On Boaz's field, the hungry are fed, the vulnerable are protected, and the lonely find community. And you know what the most powerful part of this passage is? It's what happens to Naomi when Ruth comes back home carrying 30 pounds of barley. This woman 
who literally one chapter ago was like, call me bitter because the Lord has ruined my life. The Lord has brought suffering on me. This same woman sees Ruth coming back from this experience in the field and she's like, the Lord has shown his loving kindness to us. What happened? She saw what the people of God could be. She saw a picture of what the church could be. And this is what our church is called to do, to bear witness to God's loving kindness to a world that is so broken and so desperate for hope. Let me just close by saying this. You know, today is Palm Sunday, which marks Jesus' triumphant uh, entry into Jerusalem on a donkey on his way to Calvary, where we will see the sacrificial love of Ruth and the abundant generosity of Boaz on full display. When the God of the universe willingly endures the humiliation and shame of a cross so that you and I who were once far off could be brought near by his blood. This is what this season is about. And probably the thing that wrecks me the most when I read this passage is when Boaz first goes up to his foreman and he says, you know, who does that woman belong to? The foreman says, oh, her? She's the Moabite. She's the one from Moab, right? Ruth the Moabite, that's her identity. But when Boaz addresses her for the first time in verse 8, he calls her my daughter. He calls her my daughter. That's what the love of God feels like. Everyone in this room probably walked in here carrying an identity. An identity either you've placed on yourself or identity that you feel like society has placed on you. Less than, unworthy, not successful enough, not good enough, outsider, can't fit in. But the good news of this story and the good news of the gospel is that in Christ, you are a son. You are a daughter. You are loved and you're fully accepted. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for this story. Thank you for the lives of Ruth and Boaz through which we can see more of your heart for us. Those who were once far off, those who were once separated because of our sin, who have been brought near by your blood. We thank you that as we gather here today, we don't gather as outsiders, but we gather as those who've been adopted into your family those who can call on you as Father. And I pray for our church that in this world that is so full of hostility and division and war and violence where there seems to be no hope, that this community would offer a ray of hope to a watching world desperately in need of grace and compassion and love. That people would experience your faithfulness, that people would experience your love for them 
as they do life as a part of this church. Lord, this week, as we look forward to commemorating your death and your resurrection, we pray that we would hold the gospel close to our hearts, that we would be reminded that we have nothing left to prove, no image to protect, no identity uh, that we've placed on ourselves or that the world has placed on us that we have to uphold, but that we would know that in you we're forgiven, we're loved, we're accepted, and fully validated. We thank you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.